Um, yeah, so I'll do that and then say, thank you so much for joining me, Sid. And then you can say some normal human response to that, as people <laughs> do. Uh, and then we'll go into the topics. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed. I'm your host, Chris Toomey, and I'm joined today by Sid Ravel, developer in our New York office. Sid, how's it going? It's going pretty good, Chris. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks so much for joining us. So you are a web developer within our New York office, but you also have dabbled in the mobile space and bounced around between a, a lot of languages and frameworks, and you've seen a lot of things, I guess is what I want yeah. to say there. Yeah, that's right. My, I was you know hired as a Rails developer, and I did that for some time and slowly have been doing more and more iOS work and obviously uh, JavaScript as well. <laughs> As we all do. The endless march of time towards all things being written in JavaScript. Indeed. Well, I was hoping that we could chat today about a couple of different topics. I think you are one of the stronger functional programming advocates within the company, as well as I think you've, you've dabbled in a bunch of the type systems that are out there. So mm -hmm. at a minimum, I want to start with that. And then there's a few other topics I'd love to explore later on. I feel like these are actually terms that I tend to use on the podcast somewhat loosely, but I don't feel like I've done a great job of describing or defining them. Mm -hmm. uh, so the terms in question here are functional programming and strong type systems. Mm -hmm. Granted, those are like, we, we can do a surface level, but I feel like they're independent, but often related ideas. And I'm wondering if you can help give a, a sort of base level definition so that we're all using the same sort of ideas when we're saying these words. Sure. Yeah, I would say definitely independent ideas. Functional programming <laughs> means a lot of things to a lot of people. To me, it mostly means you can pass around functions as first class objects, not not that kind of object, the other kind, to other functions. And uh, you generally don't have much of a like class system either. So you just write functions. That's kind of your only tool in some sense. And strong type systems, you know, very different. I would say like Java has a strong type system, right? But it's not, a, I wouldn't call it a functional language, at least wholly. And on the other side, there's languages like Elixir that are functional, but don't have static type systems. So you can have one without the other, for sure. You can have all the mix. Scala, I think, has all of the above. That's right. Yeah, it's functional, object-oriented, typed. <laughs> yeah. I think Mike Burns, who's another developer in the New York office, is a strong advocate of not conflating the ideas of functional programming and object-oriented as, or, or not treating those as two ends of a spectrum. But in fact, they're, they're different ideas that can actually have a strong overlap. I guess that when talking about functional programming, what you said about functions as first class citizens as things that we can pass around um, certainly makes sense. And I think to most of the languages that we work with actually have that, although Ruby, I would say, is sort of the standout uh, of a language where that is at least less comfortable. It is definitely possible to pass blocks and procs and things like that, but it is less common, uh, less of a, a core building mechanism of the language, whereas like in JavaScript, absolutely can do that. And certainly in languages like Haskell or Elm or Scala, that go a little bit further on that spectrum. That's the thing that you do. Like you said, functional programming, that's your building block because you've got functions and that's what you're using. I think the other thing that probably stands out is a distinction between pure functional programming. You know, Haskell is often cited as like a purely functional language. And I think there's actually some like formal definition of this. To me, it means that functions always give the same outputs, given the same inputs. And there is no side effects that you can do that aren't reflected in the type system. Like Haskell's IO type sort of famously encapsulates the idea of interacting with the outside world. But it does so as data and within the type system as opposed to, yeah, you can just write to a file from anywhere, which 
at first when I heard about that and saying like in Haskell, you can't just write to a file. <laughs> then I was like, wait, that doesn't seem like a way that I could program at all. And then I completely flipped around on that. I'm like, wait, in other languages, you can just write to a file at any point. Yeah, yeah. You can just I, I emit the all way. these side effects. You can make HTTP requests and you can... Yeah, so it is It is interesting, the different paradigms at play. So I guess an, an interesting thing for me is where do you fall on the purity? And I don't mean that in a pure functional sense, but in the like, how do you think about these languages? I think you use Haskell a good bit more than other folks within the company. And I see Haskell as sort of a pretty high bar on the spectrum. Mm -hmm. And then there's all the way down to like, if we're using JavaScript, we've opted out of a lot of what we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. So how, how do you think about the purity and pragmatism and trade-offs there? And, and, and when do you reach for various languages within this sort of spectrum? You know, if I could write Haskell all day, every day, I think I probably would reach for it for most things. To me, I sort of want to offload as much as I can onto the computer. And I think Haskell lets me do that really efficiently. You know, you can encode a lot into its type system, and it just won't let you run your program unless things sort of work out. I prefer that to finding out what's going wrong at runtime. But, you know, like Ruby and Rails really sort of earned their keep with how quickly you could prototype things. And like the ecosystem was just so big that you didn't have to write a lot of code. Someone else had written it for you. And so it got that was like one of the reasons it got, you know, so popular. And I think one of the reasons we still use it for our clients is because they're often trying to find some sort of market fit really quickly. And the code quality is not as important as finding out if the product is real. So I sort of think, you know, like Ruby, these things still have their place as, you know, a developer. What I would like to work in all the time is certainly the stronger typed languages. It's interesting. I think a lot of folks that are outside of Haskell and those sort of communities, they'll say like, I don't want all the math and I don't want all the complexity and I don't want to have to think that much. I just want to code. Mm -hmm. And they, at least this is my interpretation of what they're saying, they view it as more work and more thinking in order to work within a system like that. And to a certain extent, that's true. Like I personally struggled a lot with getting up to speed in Haskell and actually getting to productive. But I also had the experience that you're describing and what I've consistently heard from folks that have gotten over the hurdle with learning Haskell, mm -hmm. which is when you get it, when you're able to encode things into the type system and when you understand how to work in that mode, your ability to focus down and when you're looking at a single function and you see the type signature there, you don't need to think about anything else because it is guaranteed that you have scoped the world down to this tiny little problem. I need to take a string and I need to return a list of strings. Right. Cool. You know that that is true. The computer will guarantee that for you. And you just need to focus on how do you split up the string into the different parts. There's definitely something that's deeply interesting to me on that. Uh, although, again, I'll say my experiences with Haskell were a little, uh, I would call it a failure to start. Mm -hmm, whereas mm -hmm. I've now spent a good amount of time with Elm and... I have a different set of takeaways there, but I, there were aspects of building an Elm that I absolutely loved for that experience mm -hmm. of being able to just focus in on a single function and to trust the compiler. And when it builds, it works, or when it compiles, it works, that, that famous adage that having that level of confidence is fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I see that. I think the Haskell barrier is, is definitely real. I would I think I'd be totally amiss to say like, oh, everyone's lying to you. Like it's really easy. But I also think it's a little overstated. Like, you know, people are always like, oh, like printing Hello World in Haskell, like that's impossible. Like you have to study category theory to do that. And that's not true either. So there there is a middle ground. I think what you're saying about doing that much thinking is true. You're like doing the thinking ahead of time and putting it into your program. 
instead of sort of writing the program and doing the thinking and writing the program, doing the thinking, I find that beneficial. I know everyone's got their own style, but something I really like about it is that once you put it down in a Haskell program, you can't forget it. It's there and the compiler's enforcing it for you from then on. Much like we have tests in a Ruby system, and not to say that you shouldn't test your Haskell or other <laughs> similar programs, but the types end up being a, a guarantee and a constraint that keeps your system behaving in the same way and ensuring that you don't break it. Do you practice type-driven development much? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I often like sketch out sort of functions with type signatures, maybe even fake type signatures, just as a way to, again, narrow down the problem and put something down to not forget yeah, I, I love that as a practice. And it's one of those illuminating experiences when you do it for the first time. It feels very similar to me of if you're working on a puzzle and you just look down at all the pieces, you're like, that's a lot of pieces. What am I <laughs> going to do? And you're like, well, I can start with the corners because I know that they're corners. And mm-hmm. then I can start building along the edges and let's find the sky because that's there's only so much of it. And you start to fill in the bits that you know, and you've locked those in place. And then the rest of it becomes easier by virtue of the fact that you've constrained the hard part of the problem down to just that. Mm-hmm. Instead of when I'm working on a Rails app, depending on how it's architected, it's often the case that I need to have the entirety of the system in mind. Right. I feel the same way. Yeah. That's the thing that I want to avoid. I I honestly don't want to think that hard during the day. Or Mm -hmm. I want to think that hard on the things that I care about. Not everything. I don't want to always have to think that hard. It is interesting the different trade-offs inherent in these languages. And Have you spent much time with Elm? None at all. I've written front-end code in Haskell, but uh, not Elm in particular. Is that using GHCJS? That's right, yeah. How was your experience with that? It was amazing. I was using... An FRP library called Reflex, which is an FRP is functional reactive programming. That's right. Yeah, it was just wonderful having, you know, all the constraints of Haskell and really nice bindings to the DOM. It was people talk about Haskell as having this barrier to entry. And I think FRP has its own barrier. So it's like Mm. another whole step. And it took me a long time to sort of think in that style. But once I got there, it was, it was lovely. Is that, do arrows come into play in FRP? Oh, I, 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 see, I don't even know. And I don't okay. think uh, you need to know. <laughs> you just have to know category theory real quick to know. <laughs> the compiled to JS world is, is such an interesting one. And just the variety of different things that are trying to target essentially JavaScript as, as like a, a, a fake assembly. But like JS, which we just talked about. And then there's Scala.js, which seems to be a pretty robust. And if uh, my peak at the world is correct, it, it is used by a number of companies. I actually don't know of that many large-scale usage examples of GHCJS. I don't mm-hmm. know if you do. I do. I probably can't talk about them. Uh, but uh, that's, I always find yeah. that interesting when there are things that are like, these are our secret tools, and we don't want to talk out loud about the fact that we're using them because we consider them such a competitive advantage. Right. I saw someone saying that about Elixir the other day on the internet, and I was like, <laughs> that's everything about what you're saying is so weird to me and so antithetical to the open-source community and ecosystem that we have. Yeah, uh, so I think one of the magical parts of JCJS is almost every Haskell library works with it. Like the authors re-implemented the Haskell runtime in JavaScript. And so basically everything that you run on the back end or whatever will run in the browser, which is pretty wild. Sometimes folks do these things and I'm like, that is a feat of engineering that sort of terrifies me. Mm -hmm. But that's also fantastic because then it means that the barrier to entry on GHCJS is lower. You don't have to make the decision like, oh, but we really need that library. So I guess we can't do it. Right. Do you have any sense of what the the runtime overhead, like a GHCJS (laughs) hello world by virtue of having that, the like Haskell libraries boil down to JavaScript? Do you know what that looks like? It was several years ago at this point and it was definitely there. 
I don't know. We wrote some fairly complex like UI apps using this and you know we'd have to fight performance occasionally but we were always able to there is always that trade-off and i that's one of the things that i've sort of each time i look at one of these languages like all right what does it boil down to what what's the added overhead that i'm starting from say 200 kilobytes of extra javascript just to write my first line of code in this framework in this in this mode Mm -hmm. i want to say scala.js is in the like 100 kilobyte sort of thing although they've got the closure the closure oh, right. with an S compiler in there. <laughs> oh, God, naming. <laughs> and similarly, I'm guessing GHCJS can do some interesting stuff. Elm recently, in one of their their most recent versions, did a ton of work to allow for more of that like dead code elimination and things, cool. which seems like one of the benefits you should get from having a purely functional language. So I'm glad they were able to do that uh, and actually live up to that. Definitely. That's really cool. I s- don't think you can write Elm on the back end. Is that right? It's like a front end only language. I think currently, although I'm guessing you could write Elm and target Node, because it's at the end oh, of the day, okay. Elm always turns into JavaScript. But I believe the runtime that is present in Elm, the libraries that you have available are strictly focused on the browser, at least for the time being. Interesting. So I was going to say that I think Haskell is the only language where I've had the experience of true sort of front end and back end are the same. Mm. And we were able to share data types across those two domains, and it was it was awesome. Yeah, that is a magical dream. I believe Scala and Scala JS can have okay. that because they have a similar. Folks have taken on the Herculean effort of rewriting or adapting. I'm not actually sure like what the mechanism is, but almost all of Scala regular code works either on the JVM or in Scala JS. And so you get that same like types flow across that boundary in a really interesting way. But yeah, it is sort of the dream. That's why some people reach for JavaScript, I guess. But Yeah, uh, yeah, I understand that. But then you don't have types, uh, at least not by default. Not my cup of tea. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor. This episode is brought to you by CircleCI, the continuous integration and delivery service used by companies like Twilio, Intuit, WeWork, and Tinder, as well as us here at ThoughtBot. CI and CD are so important for keeping teams building, it's all CircleCI does. They focus on creating powerful, flexible CI-CD pipelines so that you and your team can focus on doing what you do best. Whether you're a company of 5 or 500, CircleCI can build, test, and deploy your Linux and macOS projects from GitHub and Bitbucket in their cloud or installed on your servers. And anyone can sign up and start building for free since CircleCI gives both private and public projects 1,000 free build minutes per month. Sign up and start building for free at circleci.com bikeshed. Thank you to Circle CI for supporting this episode of the Bike Shed. But actually, uh, one thing that I know that you have been working on a good amount lately is TypeScript, and uh, that's been a, a focus of mine as well. So I'm interested in your experiences there and how you found that, especially in contrast to some of the stronger type systems and functional languages mm-hmm. that you've been working with. Yeah, I I love TypeScript. I think it's a vast, vast improvement over JavaScript. And, you know, its type system is actually quite good. It has support for like uh, algebraic data types, which is sort of the, to me, like the thing that pushes you into like a really nice type system. Do you think you could give a succinct radio description of what algebraic data types are? Yeah, let's see. People, I think that people also call them tagged union types. And it's when you have a type that can be inhabited by many members, right? So if you have like a direction type that's inhabited by north southeast west or whatever and then additionally the members can hold values so like maybe each of those north south east west inhabitants has like two floating points for latitude and longitude right or something like that Mm -hmm. and the reason i think it's called algebraic is because when you have a 
data type that's inhabited by one or two or three objects. That's called a sum type, right? It can be like one of many things. Tuples, for example, are some are an example of a product type where each coordinate of the tuple can be you can you can have like you know int string or whatever is your tuple. And that's a product of those two types. Right. So the space that the type can occupy is multiplicative as opposed to additive. Exactly. Examples that come to mind where this becomes a really powerful technique is going to forget the the title of the blog post, but it's like slaying a UI anti-pattern or something like that. But it talks hmm. about when we're working with remote data, uh, we often end up in a case where there's these different states that our data can be in. We either haven't actually asked the server for it at all yet, so we're in this loading state as a virtue of that. Then we've actually initiated the request, so we're in a different loading state if we want to represent it that way, but it is a different state of, of the UI. Then eventually we can either get back the data, so now we have data and it's got some additional the actual data associated with it, mm-hmm. or we can have an error, which is typically like a string or possibly some more structured object. And algebraic data types are an absolutely perfect way to model that. And when you have that ability, then your UI can be that much more robust because you know, instead of saying like, we either have the data or we don't, and it's this optional, that is insufficient to capture the different states that the UI can be in. But by virtue of having the algebraic data types, Elm actually has a package for this just called remote data that does a wonderful job of packaging this up. But it it allows... Again, like you were saying, of, of taking the knowledge and taking the constraints of the system and putting it into the type system so that then it's going to watch your back and make sure that you are accounting for all of those different cases and, mm-hmm. you know, all of those sort of things. Yeah. Going back to, I guess, TypeScript, you know, it has support for these things. And I think that's one of the reasons it's so nice to work with. And I think the other reason it's so nice to work with is it doesn't intimidate maybe plain JavaScript programmers. So, for example in our interview process, in our React Native process. I have been running a few interviews in TypeScript, even though the candidates don't know TypeScript. And it's been both, I think, a great interview tactic, but also no one has been like that tripped up by it. Everyone kind of adapts to it very quickly, and it's, it's cool to see. That's interesting. I also like that as an interviewing tactic of something that is very close to, but also subtly different. And how does someone react to that? Uh, it sounds like it doesn't come across as like a trick question or anything that trips people up, but it's an interesting thing to see when someone is unfamiliar with something. How do they mm. respond? And I'm not putting them on the spot. You know, I'm, right. I'm trying to help them out as they go yeah. through this, but... <laughs> But I've definitely found similarly that TypeScript has a wonderful story for gradual adoption. And I think that's a way that I've been more comfortable bringing it to clients and saying, yep, we've got a team of primarily JavaScript developers here, but I think we can incrementally start to add in this type information. And I think that will add a ton of robustness to your application. I actually wrote a blog post about that exact thing, which was I was on a client project and, you know, halfway through, we had some time to refactor and um, go back. And what we did was add uh, flow in this case, but in the middle of the project. And it ended up being amazing. And yeah, there's a post on the ThoughtPop blog about it. Well, we will absolutely link to that. I'm interested in your experience or take, considering that you have a little more work in languages that are very strict. So like Haskell does not let you kid around about this. You can't even, again, as we were talking about earlier, you can't write to a file without putting that into the type. Everything must be expressed. All of the types must line up. There is no any in Haskell, mm-hmm. I think. Is that true? That feels true. Uh, I think you can probably do some nonsense. But I'm interested in, with TypeScript, I feel like there's probably a point of, if you don't cross this threshold of using it, that it's not going to be worth it. 
that if you've just got like a couple of types, they're more of a nuisance than not. And there's a certain tipping point where suddenly enough of the system has type coverage that things start to work in a meaningful way, start to give you meaningful feedback rather than just being something else you have to do. Maybe that's not true. Maybe it's useful even if like it's one type annotation and then the types type inference carries it from there and even that is useful. But I'm wondering, do you have thoughts around that and and how it meshes, I guess, with the JavaScript ecosystem, which is historically got some interesting types where you've got overloaded functions and mm. can return any different thing and things that don't necessarily map to a strongly functional approach. Right, yeah. I think what you're saying is about right that there is a tipping point like you know if you have like five functions all of which have type like string to string to string to string it's not going to help you that much but yeah once like you know your largely or domain objects are modeled in types and that's what's being propagated around i think that's where you get the you know real benefits all of a sudden you know sort of what shape all of your data can have yeah i don't know where that tipping point is but i do feel like there is one inherent to it and i worry uh, I've been trying to like keep an eye on the community and see if folks are like, TypeScript's garbage. This was a terrible time. We tried it, but didn't actually put any type annotations anywhere. And it just yelled at us for things and we didn't like it. And I've not seen that, which I'm I'm happy that that's been the case. But I do wonder, like, if I were to run into that at a client, do I know where that point is? Do I know when to push and when to be like, all right, I guess you're not seeing the value. I think I would probably still push pretty hard for it because I do believe in it sufficiently over JavaScript without types. But mm hopefully you'll be able to make other cases for it. Like the things that you wrote in TypeScript, you know, will be less buggy or this kind of thing, even if you're having to, you know, fight it a little bit at first. For me, such a core argument for strong type systems is how they encourage and support refactoring. And I think that's the one where if I'm able to make a change and the type system doesn't yell at me that I broke something when I broke something, then I'm sad. And I do see certain cases of that with TypeScript, particularly interacting with certain view libraries. Like sometimes mm. when working with React, React is just like, yeah, I don't know, put anything in the <laughs> in the children of a JSX in like a React element. Sure. And I'm not sure if this is an issue with the typing, but it is valid according to TypeScript. And granted, this might just be the type library on definitely typed for React. Mm-hmm. But if you put an object literal into as the children so if you're like interpolating an object literal like you accidentally don't traverse deep enough into the object you're trying to get to like say the id but you actually go one level higher and so now you're passing in the Mm. object which has key id value one Mm -hmm. typescript will say that's fine Hmm. and then at runtime it will blow up oh interesting i yeah i haven't encountered that I've looked into it briefly, and I think it has to do with the fact that functions are valid as children Uh, in React, um, which totally makes sense. That's a pattern that we use and leverage, but functions are sort of objects, and so the way that the type (laughs) layer was written just kind of ran into a wall there, and it's like, I don't know, basically anything is a valid child of a JSX node, and I'm like, oh, that... Man, I hate when I see a runtime error that we definitely could have caught upstream. So... Yeah, React Native in particular had some really gnarly types for some of the um, sort of standard functions you use. And they are scary to look at, but I still, I think, appreciate knowing ahead of time that it might be one of these like eight things or whatever. Yeah, as long as that's a true representation of the world. But like you said, TypeScript is actually a pretty powerful type system, a, a very expressive and complete one. And I would expect that we have a way to describe this. I actually downloaded uh, or like I cloned the definitely typed repo one day and I tried to poke around and see if I could add like fix this. 
That's mm-hmm. not a repo that I feel comfortable <laughs> working in, it turns out. It's actually kind of a hard problem of how do you write tests for type signatures? You can't write invalid code just directly, can you? Because uh, then it won't run. How do you, uh, what do you do? I don't know if this is exactly what you're talking about, but are you familiar with like a quick check or, or libraries mm-hmm. of this sort? I am, but please describe what they are. Yeah. So instead of like writing specific test cases, you sort of describe what they call invariance about your code. So an invariant is something that should always hold when this function runs. Like maybe you an invariant of, you know, the addition function is that if you add two positive numbers, you always get a larger number. So instead of like writing test cases, you provide quick check with invariance and it will generate uh, cases and ensure your invariants always hold. Right. So it essentially acts as automated QA in the way that like a QA team may at times just go in and be like, what if I were to put garbage into this form? What if I were to put empty? What if I were to put lizard negative one and just every sort of arbitrary value that we may not think of as we're focused on the happy path? Yeah. And then it starts to exercise it. And actually, I've not really used quick check or any. Is there a more general term? Quick check's a library in Haskell, right? There's a more general term. Is this fuzz testing? I don't know. I feel like there's a term for this category or property testing, maybe. I think that's what you said a minute ago. I've seen one actually in the JavaScript world, which I'm sort of intrigued by because I think that's a a good way to like throw it at your React component. And it's like, I should accept any string, but it mm-hmm. turns out I don't. But it's a different approach in the same way that like tests are a thing that we believe in. Types seem to be a thing that we believe in. This almost feels like a third facet way to constrain our system or, or to exercise our system and then validate that it does the stuff that we we want. But yeah, anyway, definitely type of scary. Yep. Yeah, for sure. In a reasonable way. Like I, I get why it is the way that it is, but I did not feel comfortable poking around and trying to fix things. I broke every other test in the system. <laughs> the end of that story. And I was like, oh, all right, Friday's over. I'm done. I got to go back. To... <laughs> but yeah, it's interesting. I, I like to hear that you are as pro TypeScript as you are, because I, I've talked to other folks that are into Haskell and they cling very tightly to the purity and the sort of intensity of the way Haskell approaches things. Mm-hmm. And I've been intrigued by the pragmatism and sort of the middle ground that Mm -hmm. TypeScript operates at. To me, I mean, I always tell people like the types are more important than the functional programming to me basically all the time. If I had to pick one of the two, it's always going to be types. Interesting. So Ruby with types. Yeah, I'll take it. Yeah, there there is a version out there, project from Stripe, which I've yet to play with, but I'm intrigued by. I've seen that. Yeah, or uh, I've seen that it exists, but I don't know that it's actually whether they've actually like put it out there for people to use. I think they've previewed it and given like a conference talk, but I don't know that you can actually download and run it and mm-hmm. use it. But I know that they're using it internally to try and get their large amount of Ruby code under control, as we <laughs> often have to do in the later years of yeah, I mean it's at least a little wild to me that like that investment was worth it for them you know like instead of just like using another language and interrupting like it must have really been worth it to do what they did so I, I look forward to reading about it I feel like it's one of those situations where they have a ton of Ruby code. This is a guess for the record for anyone mm-hmm. that's out there. And this is not a definitive thing that I know, but <laughs> they've invested for many years in a foundational layer of a ton of Ruby and Rails code. And rather than like rewriting, rewriting is hard, often bug ridden, and it's it's really difficult to capture all of the semantics correctly and map that into another language because mm-hmm. there are subtle semantics encoded in that system that people didn't necessarily intend, but are now true. And so the goal is to wrap safety around it rather than trying to rewrite it into something that is inherently safer. But I agree, it is such a complex trade-off there. 
And I'm intrigued that they went that route because building a type system is not easy, especially for something as dynamic as Ruby. Indeed. Well, I'd love to shift the conversation a little bit. You had hinted at some interesting ideas around the intersection of accessibility and web programming and some things there that I thought would make for a great conversation. So can you give a little bit of context and then we can dig into the conversation proper? Sure. It was sort of like a an idle thought of mine. I, I had been doing a lot of accessibility work on iOS for a client, which was pretty new to me. It was, re- it was really cool to learn about and uh, implement. And so I started thinking about accessibility for programmers, and I was wondering if statically typed languages are more accessible than dynamically typed ones for, say, like a blind programmer. Like, is the type information you have in front of you and, you know, all the associated IDE tooling, would like a blind programmer consider it more accessible? It's interesting. My intuitive guess would be yes, but then I think there's a a more interesting thing or a parallel to web accessibility or or mobile accessibility where something that's more accessible tends to be better for everyone. Like the way that we make things accessible is to make them clear and well-defined and expressive and displays intent, has consistency, all of these sort of things. And so the idea that we can encode more truth into our program, encode into the type signatures and things like that, capture more of that information, that that definitely rings true to me. Yeah, I was just sort of like running through an example in my head, like, what can your editor really tell you about a random Ruby method? You know, not all I've that I've asked much. RuboCop a lot of times and RuboCop says, I don't know, seems good to me. <laughs> and I'm like, RuboCop, come on, we talked about this. But it is really hard to say much about Ruby code at rest because it is such a dynamic language. Right. Whereas, I mean, I've seen like type signatures in Haskell that are like, this function reads from a database. Like that is encoded in the type system. I think that screams accessibility to me, but... It screams both accessibility, but again, in the in the parallel to just usability and accessibility and, and the parallels therein, the sort of code discovery that you can do. Like, man, what are all my functions that interact with the database? And be able to like pull up a list of those and then quickly navigate through to them. The idea that like the code is more than just symbols in a text file. Mm-hmm. But as you start to add this more information, then you can have an IDE or other tooling that can interact with it in, in a more useful, like automated refactorings, I think are probably much more powerful in static oh, type languages than say in Ruby, again, where you're just kind of moving around symbols, mm-hmm. magic symbols that happen to mean things. The old just global search and replace in a Ruby project. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so the, the project that you were working on with iOS, was that on iOS native or was that React native? That was iOS native. I've heard but have not confirmed that the accessibility story for React Native on iOS is not very good. And the native iOS one is actually you get a lot out of the box. Uh, I wrote another blog post about this, actually. And without too much work, you get a lot. And with a little more work, you could make it really quite nice. I've heard really wonderful things about iOS as a platform in terms of accessibility. And it's not surprising to me that that carries through into the SDKs and into actually being able to Mm -hmm. build apps and then have those be accessible, ideally by default, much like HTML should be accessible by default. And then we go out of our way and we ruin it sometimes. Basically, what Apple did was they built accessibility into UIKit, basically as a first-class citizen. And so a lot of the just standard elements that you'll work with, like buttons and labels and this sort of thing, just come with accessibility information attached to them with mm-hmm. no work from the developer. And then they provided like access to the APIs that they use to actually implement these things for you to implement accessibility on your own custom stuff. 
I really like that that's a focus that they've taken because that feels like the right layer to do it at. You're giving this SDK, you're giving this API that you're interacting with so much information, semantic information, that it can then pretty directly turn that around and make that part of the accessibility story. But uh, similarly, it makes me very sad to hear that React Native doesn't necessarily carry that through. And I would love to hear in the future about efforts on that front to, to see accessibility move in the right direction. Because I know React, as a framework inherently, there's no limitations to accessibility. I don't know how much they actually do towards accessibility, though. Sure. I don't know if, if you've worked with that much. No, sad, I'm sad to say, you know, this was my first real focus on accessibility. So I'm sort of limited to the iPhone. Interesting. It tends to be one of those things that's sort of a sideline uh, and less of a core consideration, which is unfortunate because, again, I think it's work that benefits everyone and uniquely benefits certain individuals in a, in a sort of transformative way. Yeah. I mean, so, for example, my current client is also an iOS project. And from working uh, with the accessibility work on the previous one, like I was able to carry a lot of it forward just because I knew that it wasn't going to suck up a ton of my time or, or anything <laughs> like this. It was just like it became sort of part of my workflow. Yeah, much like security, where security can be an onerous task if you're not as familiar with it. But once you get those core things in your belt and you know, like the core don't do's, mm -hmm. it's more of avoiding pitfalls than mm -hmm. actually having to like work towards it. Or ideally, yeah. it would be that like React Native seems to be sort of a counterpoint. Mm -hmm. But the web and iOS both seem to be platforms that offer some good primitives that we can then build on. Yeah, I like that analogy. Awesome. Well, uh, I think with that, we can probably wrap things up. Sid, thanks so much for joining us. And uh, where can folks find more of your work on the internet? Probably GitHub. My handle is just Sid Ravel and the ThoughtBot blog, obviously. And thanks for having me, Chris. Absolutely. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of the others, you can leave us a rating or review on iTunes or share it on Twitter. And if you have any feedback for this or any of the other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed, or you can reach me at Chris Toomey on Twitter, or you can email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.